right, we have 60 verses to look at today. And uh, I think it was George Petrella told me that Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 38 sermons on this one passage. If I were to do justice to it, I guess you could just preach on it till the cows come home. Uh, we've got enough to keep us busy till about 11, 12 tonight. What I'm going to do is I want to read the whole passage because it's a darn good sermon. I'm going to read the whole passage because what you're going to hear is less Bob, more God's word. That's not a bad deal, right? That's not a bad deal at all. Okay, good. Well, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be acceptable to the Lord, my strength and my redeemer. I don't know how you would do if you were all of a sudden in trouble with the authorities who didn't mind picking up stones to execute people that threatened their lifestyle and their religion. I don't know how you would do if persecution came to this country and, and it was direct and, 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 and people told you, renounce Jesus Christ or else. Uh, I don't know how I would do, but I do know this. I do know this. Jesus Christ said that when... They bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities. Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Let me introduce Stephen, and then we'll read. Stephen is one of the seven deacons. When the situation came up where a certain number of the widows were not receiving the help that they needed, and Stephen was part of that. He helped with that, and he was full of grace and full of power and full of the Holy Spirit, and he performed signs and wonders, and nobody could refute him, and they, and, and they accused him. A bunch of people came together and accused, accused Stephen of speaking out against God and speaking out against Moses and the temple and the law, so they brought him before the Sanhedrin, and if you remember, the last time I talked about the Sanhedrin, and if you were awake, you might remember that the Sanhedrin was made up of 71 elders of Israel. Uh, they were headed up by the high priest. They were like the Supreme Court under the Roman authorities. And they started off as a perfectly good thing. It was God's idea to begin with. But then they lost their connection with God. And they lost their connection with the people of God. And they didn't love God. And they didn't love the people. They wanted control. And they were responsible for handing Jesus Christ over to the Romans to be killed. It was the Sanhedrin that was responsible to, uh, they, they arrested Peter and John and they flogged the apostles and now they're about to kill Stephen. So Stephen is called on to defend himself and as you can see, this is not a Stephen saying to them, hey guys, why don't you all lighten up because I didn't really do anything that bad. No. This is Stephen not defending himself. This is a prophetic word that Stephen is about to give. It's like a prophetic rant that you might see in the Old Testament. Stephen is basically saying, you don't like me now, you're going to hate me when I'm done. The Sanhedrin puts Stephen on trial, Stephen puts the hand Sanhedrin on blast. 
This is not a defense about why he's right. It's a defense about why they're wrong. It's about the glory of God. It begins and ends with the glory of God. Uh, you'll see in verse 2, the God of glory appeared to Abraham. And in verse 55, just before he died, he saw the glory of God and a vision of heaven. And so much of this speech is about missing the true glory of God on the part of the Sanhedrin. And the glory of God is that splendor and the brightness and the excellence of God that totally upsets our worlds because, we, uh, because it's just bigger and greater and more beautiful than anything that we could ever imagine. So let's dig in. We're in Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 7, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts in the New Testament. And so here he is facing his accusers, and the high priest speaking for the Sanhedrin says, starting at verse 1, Are these things so? Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom uh, before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, and 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, and he and, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of the promise grew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. 
And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Man, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? You want to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and they have, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush, And this man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. And this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him. But they thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. And as for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring me slain beasts? And sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel. You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it with Uh, Joshua, when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers, so it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house do you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did so to you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears 
and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they were, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. May God bless the reading of his holy word. To his name, give all honor, praise, and glory. I I just want to hone in on a couple of things, and I'm out of your way. And the first thing I want to say is that Stephen is accused of dissing the temple. And so Stephen wants to give them a sweep of history from the time of Abraham to the present. And where, and, and he wants to answer the question, where does God really live? Where is the presence of God? And so The point that Stephen wants to make is that God is not confined to living in a building made by human hands. The temple is not the only place where you're going to find God. He says that Abraham, if you follow the story, this is like a whole, the whole first two-thirds of the Bible in one chapter. And Abraham, the God of glory, appeared to him not at the temple, not in Jerusalem, but in Mesopotamia. You know, land of moon worshipers. It says that God was with Joseph, not in Jerusalem, not at the temple, but in Egypt, another pagan land. And it says that God met with Moses, not in Jerusalem, not in the temple, but in Midian, in the wilderness. And in fact, God even called that holy ground. The glory of the Lord then filled the tabernacle, the Bible says. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. But when Jesus came, the word was made flesh. And it says that, and and, and he says that he dwelt among us. And the word dwelt, some of you may know, means that God, Jesus set up a tent among us. He tabernacled. He created a tabernacle among us where we could worship the true and living God. He, he, He tabernacled among us and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of God. And then Jesus says, you destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days because Jesus himself is now the holy place where God dwells. And Ephesians 2 says that we rise to become a holy temple where the Lord dwells by his spirit. And so this is not a sanctuary. This room you're in is not a sanctuary. This is the place where the sanctuaries gather. This is the place where the sanctuaries come brick by brick and and rise to become a holy temple where the Lord God dwells by his spirit. In fact, Stephen might have known about the conversation that Jesus had with the woman at the well when she said, um, when she said, you know, uh, my grandfather told my father to tell me that the right place to worship is over here on Mount Gerizim in Samaria, but your grandfather told your father to tell you that the right place to worship is on Mount Zion, Jerusalem. And she says, so I think you're probably like a prophet. Why don't you tell me which one is it? Which one is it really? Is it Gerizim or is it Jerusalem? Is it my mountain or is it your mountain? Am I right 
or am I wrong? And Jesus said, you know what? The time is coming, and now is, that it's not going to be about your mountain, and it's not going to be about my mountain. It's not going to be about any particular mountain. But they who the Father is seeking worshipers who will simply worship him in spirit and in truth. And that's what Stephen is leading up to. But there are substitutes for the glory of God, and you and I know about some of these substitutes because we've probably tried them all. You look at verse 48. God does not live in houses made by hands. And then verse 42 about the golden calf, he says they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. And look at verses 39 through 43. Just take a peek at that. 39 through 43. Look at those verses. What are they mostly about? 39 through 43. Talk back to me. What are they about? False gods, idols. That is the heart of Stephen's message. He's saying, you're accusing me of not emphasizing your temple enough. But I'm going to turn the tables. And I'm going to talk to you about your idolatry. The heart of the message is, I'm not speaking against God. I'm not speaking against Moses. I'm not speaking against the law. And I'm not speaking against the temple. It's that God and Moses and the law and I are with one voice speaking against your idolatrous relationship to this building made by human hands and your religious jobs. This is one of the big ways the Sanhedrin had lost connection to God. You wonder, how did they get that way? How did they get that way? And I want to say that it's because of chronic, unrepentant, religious idolatry. Chronic, unrepentant, religious idolatry. It can happen to anybody, but God give us grace to repent whenever we see that happening in our hearts. You see, when it's religious idolatry baptized idolatry, then it doesn't look so bad, so we don't feel like we really need to repent of it, right? You know, this is a holy place. This is the temple from the, from the, from the great history that we, that we have, our great heritage. And it leads up, our, all of our wonderful heritage leads up seamlessly to this wonderful, holy place that we get to control. And now we hate anybody that threatens our way of life. Do you see how that works? It's an ugly, ugly, ugly thing. Chronic, unrepentant, religious idolatry. It can happen to anybody. It can happen to you and me. Martin Luther said, I tell you, whatever you set your heart on and rely on is really your God. I want to talk to you about something deep in my heart and in yours. It's something that the Bible talks about from Genesis to Revelation. It promises life, and all it ever does is eat you up. But you feel like you have to have it. It can get your emotions all heated up. It can break up relationships. It can cause all kinds of troubles. It can cause fights, and it can turn you into a one-man pity party. It can cost you your job. It can make you desperate and keep you thirsty and unsatisfied. And that is the idol of the heart. The idols in the heart. Whether it's power, whether it's money, whether it's sex, whether it is 
just control whatever it is. That is what idols do. They don't love you, but they promise you lots of great stuff. And you trust them. And the more you trust them, and the more they work for you, the more hardened your heart becomes. And the more ready you are to take out anybody that threatens your idol. You know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one repenting in here? I don't think I am. I think I might have some brothers and sisters who feel the same way, who might struggle with this sort of thing, who have to keep going back to Jesus again and again and again. Oh, Jesus, heal me of my idolatry, of my own heart. I started thinking about this more seriously when uh, when I was talking to my wife, Grace, and um, we were talking about what a pain I am to travel with. And I, th- and, and I thought about how I had to have things a certain way. I had to have, okay, y'all, y'all think I'm just a really nice guy. That's another thing, you know, I try to come off like a really nice guy. Right. Um, but when we got down to talking about this, she put her finger on some stuff in my heart. I have to have things a certain way. I have to have everything pleasant. I have to be comfortable all the time, and I have to feel confident and look righteous. I don't ask for much. What is that? And then I remembered this book I found in a thrift store. It's the same book that Mike showed you last week. Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. I found it two bucks at a thrift store. It changed my life. I read it. hit me upside the head. And I got challenged down to the core. So I want to pass on some of my grief to you. So that you can also go to Jesus and do some heart searching. Let's do some heart searching right now. What are the if onlys that I stress about? If only I could have some peace and quiet. If only life would go smoothly for just a minute or two. If only I had a husband. If only I had a different husband. If only I, you know, if only things between me and my wife were better. If only I had a better house. If only I had a stick shift in my car. If only I had a motorcycle. Everything would be groovy. If only I had more money. If only I could control things so that things would work the way I want them to. You know what you're saying? If only I were God. And could make anything happen that I wanted to happen. If only I were sovereign. If only I were eternal and unchangeable in my being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. You see what I'm saying? This is what happens to us. This is the lure of the idol of the heart. And it can happen to any of us. What am I willing to trash my closest relationships in order to have, in order to get? What am I willing to trash relationships in order that I have, because I have to have? What am I willing to sin for in order to get it? What's my price? Signs of the idols of the heart. And, and 
you know, it's the central thing. God is a jealous God. He says, it's either them or it's me. He doesn't like you two-timing. And so, Stephen is opening up to them. He's doing them a big favor. They don't see it that way. But he's doing them a big favor, and he's opening up their eyes to the fact that they have an idolatrous relationship to their control and their temple and their way of life and their religiosity and their rightness. And they're worshiping that instead of the true God who wants to mold their hearts and humble them and cause them to be receptive to the new things that God would be doing through Jesus Christ. With the Sanhedrin, certain things became so important that they, just like their forefathers, were willing to kill anybody who challenged their way of life. Chronic, unrepentant, religious idolatry became institutionalized. It became the thing. It became their identity. You try and challenge that, and you're in deep trouble. I haven't even started talking to you about my music idolatry. Oh, man. Oh, <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. I have hurt feelings hurt people's feelings. I have run roughshod over people because I had to have my music just right. I'm a recovering musical snob. And may the Lord continue to humble me and to work on me and to make me more like Jesus. All right. So here's the tragedy. All 71 members of the Sanhedrin heard multiple warnings and sermons from Peter and the apostles and Stephen's face has become like the face of a messenger of God and Stephen's words, and they did not come to Jesus in repentance and faith, but they killed the messenger. For us today, I want you to ask God, is there anything in my life that I have to have so bad that I'm willing to do evil to get it? Psalm 139, pray that one. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me to the everlasting way. Well, that's not all Stephen's saying. Stephen also wants to talk about Jesus, but he does it in a very interesting way. In fact, he talks about Jesus from the very beginning of the sermon all the way to the end, if you have eyes to see and ears to hear. Because, you see, only Jesus can rescue anybody from the tyranny and control of idols in the heart. You look again at Jesus, at, 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 at Jesus as he shows up in Stephen's speech and the story of his death. You look at Abraham, God's humble servant, living with a promise but no place to call his home. Does that remind you of anybody? Joseph, God's mistreated servant, sent to deliver hostile and ungrateful people who didn't want to honor him and his own received him not. Does that remind you of anybody? Um, Moses, God's mighty servant who sent to, sent to deliver his people out of slavery. Does that remind you of anybody? David, God's royal servant, the king on the throne of God's people. How about Solomon, God's wise servant, full of wisdom and knowledge? Who is Stephen really talking about? Who is Stephen really talking about? That's right. Y'all get an A. 
A plus. Luke chapter 24, Jesus gave a Bible study with a couple of disciples after his resurrection. And in this Bible study, he says, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Jesus is the new Abraham, no place to lay his head. Jesus is the new Joseph, rejected by his own people, but the blessing of all nations. Jesus is the new Moses, who delivers us from the bondage of sin. Jesus is the new David, who sits on the throne of God's people forever as king. Jesus is the new Solomon, and Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Jesus is the true temple where the glory of God dwells, and that temple was destroyed but raised up three days when Jesus died for our sins and rose again. And we need to thank God for that. All right. The death, even the death of Stephen, you see Jesus all over that. I mean, false accusations, an unfair court. The last two prayers that Stephen prayed before he died echoed the prayers of Jesus. When Jesus says, Lord, unto you I commit my spirit. And, and, and Stephen says, Lord, receive, Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen says, gets on his knees, and just before he died, he says, do not hold this sin against them. Everything points to Jesus. And that is the point of the sermon. Jesus is the only hope for the Sanhedrin. Jesus, the one that they crucified, is the only hope for them. And Jesus is the only one who can rescue me from my idolatry. And Jesus is the only one who can rescue you, brothers and sisters, from your idolatry. And it is this Jesus that Stephen sees in a vision just before he dies. Look at verses 55 through 60. Because the true glory of God is worth dying for. In verses 55, it says that he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Usually, Jesus is not standing at the right hand of God. He's usually what? Seated at the right hand of God. Because it says in Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus, our great high priest, when he finished his work, he sat down. It's finished. It's done. It's once and for all. And in the Old Testament, there was no place for a priest to sit in any of the furnishings of the tabernacle because the priest was busy all the time because the priest had to keep offering sacrifices again and again over and over and over for the people's sins and it could not cleanse them from the people's sins but it could only be a provisional sacrifice looking ahead to the time when Jesus would do it once and for all and then he sits down but now he is standing is standing. Why? I can think of maybe three possible reasons, and maybe it's all a combination of all three. I don't know. I believe it may be connected with Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, you have these beasts who have brutish power, but you've got one like a son of man who approaches the ancient of days on the And the Ancient of Days confers on the Son of Man a kingdom that will never be destroyed, a kingdom that will always be, a gracious kingdom, a good kingdom. 
And that's a vision of what the Father would give the Lord Jesus Christ. He would give him the king. And so Jesus stands before the Ancient of Days. And then, because Stephen's word for Jesus is the Son of Man. Now, Jesus called himself the Son of Man, but no other human being ever called Jesus Son of Man but Stephen. I think he might have been thinking about Daniel chapter 7. And then in Psalm 68, here's a great one. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Jesus is standing to say the victory is ultimately mine. And Jesus takes note of what is happening because precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And he will not remain seated when when the death of his saint is happening at the time. Jesus stands there. You know, I mean, this is, this is a paltry um, uh, illustration in comparison to what's going on here. But maybe it'll help open it up a little bit. Last Sunday, I sat down, and I was just exhausted, and I, I propped my feet up and watched a, 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 uh, a, a YouTube of, uh, I don't know, you're supposed to call it YouTube video. A YouTube video of the Ninth Symphony of Beethoven. Beethoven's an old friend of mine. I love this. You know, I just grew up with him. You know. And so I was there watching that, and the, 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 the choir is seated for the entire performance up until the very last movement. And you see the choir stand. And you say, oh, here it comes. Here it comes. It's going to be glorious. And Jesus is seated because he has finished his work. Jesus stands. The victory is mine. Let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. So he sees the glory of God. Sees the king of kings stand. God is for Stephen. God is Stephen's true treasure. And all of Stephen's loss is actually gain. Because he is coming home to his Savior. To Jesus, the King has stood up. Receive him. Let the enemies tremble. Judgment is coming, and Jesus is not only the judge, Jesus is also the one who was judged in my place. If you will humble yourselves, and if you will repent of your sins, that means to turn away. You've been walking one direction. You turn around and start walking the other direction. If you will humble yourself and you come to Jesus and you say, Jesus, you are my only hope. You're all I've got. I don't have anything else. I've been trying to construct this life of my own making. I've been trying to exercise control over my world as if I were God. I've been serving idols again and again and again, thinking that they're, gonna, that they're finally going to pay me back, and they never do. And I am empty. I am unsatisfied. I am a sinner have mercy upon me. And if you could say that maybe for the very first time today, maybe you've never come to Jesus and found him to be the treasure who is worth living for and worth dying for. But maybe today, maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time, but you got a little cluttered up with idols. And you need a flush out. You need a radiator flush like they do in the car. You need need a cleansing of the Holy Spirit. You need a time of repentance. 
of those idols. Maybe you're just starting to think of, think in terms of those idols. You know, we don't think about it all that much a lot of times. And we, and passages like this kind of bring it back up into the front where we need to see it. But don't look at the dumb, evil deeds that you have done and kick yourself for it and say, I'm not going to do that again. That was really stupid. No. Go to the root. Why did I do that? Why did I have to have everything so perfect? Why did I have to have all that control? Why did I have to have that, that, that musical thing even though the musicians left in tears? Why did I have to, uh, you know, why, why did I have to insist on my way? Why? Because I thought that an idol in my heart that promised me the moon would keep its promise. And I found out that the idol, once again, has left me high and dry. What causes conflicts among you? You want something, and you're not getting it. You know, you think of the first, the first and the last commandment of the Ten Commandments. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, says the Lord. And the last commandment is you shall not covet your neighbor's anything that, that your neighbor has. The first commandment is about stuff that you can get a hold of and begin to trust in and rely on. The last commandment is about stuff you wish you had, but you don't have it. But it's the same old stuff. Even Paul later on says that covetousness, wanting stuff that other people got or wanting the life that other people got or wanting the spouse that other people got, wanting the house that other people got, is idolatry. And the only hope for these idol factories that live in our hearts is Jesus Christ. So come to him in humility. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And seeing Jesus makes dying glorious. And I just want to mention one more thing. Taking in all of this scene and hearing this sermon and approving of the execution and receiving the coats of the people who were stoning Stephen and killing him was a young man named Saul. Don't think for a minute that this sermon fell on completely deaf ears. You find Saul quoting Stephen for the rest of his life. You find Saul humbling himself before Jesus Christ and saying, Who are you, Lord? And receiving from Jesus grace a new life, the Holy Spirit, and a relationship with the Father. A young man named Saul. There's hope. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together, and, and as we do, could I ask the, uh, the uh, prayer team to come up? And, and uh, are you in the back in the front? Okay, you're back in the front. People in the back in the front. Sometimes the music gets kind of crazy up here. It's hard to, uh, hard to concentrate on your prayers. So the folks in the back and the folks in the front as well. And um, I just want to make the, I want to invite you. I, I know I can't make that happen. But if the Holy Spirit is talking to you about some of those idols of the heart, those things that you have to have, maybe it's causing conflict between you and people you love because you had to have it. And maybe the Holy Spirit is showing you, ah, it wasn't just that we're not getting along. That was an idol. 
this is a good time to talk to Jesus about those items. There are people here from the prayer team who would just love to, to just invite you to come to the throne of grace and find help in time of need. Take some time to pray, just uh, some silent time, and, and while we uh, worship.